0: Young revelers danced the night away in the heart of the Israeli desert, their joyous celebrations turning into howering dashes of survival at the break of day. Innocent families perished within the secure confines of their kibbutz, desperately clinging to life as they remained devoid of any military aid. Meanwhile, the vulnerable, both young and old, cowered in fear as missiles rained down upon the buildings beside them in Gaza. These are the unsung heroes and victims of the ravages of warfare—men, women, children, couples, families, and individuals, both in Israel and Gaza, all caught in the crossfires of a brutal conflict with no clear victor in sight. Today, we sit down with criminal justice expert and acclaimed sociologist, Dr. Stephanie Cappadona of Curry College to delve into the profound and enduring impacts of the Israeli Hamas conflict on us all. This is a special edition of Conversations with Carol. I've admired this wonderful professional, criminal justice expert, sociologist as well, someone who knows about the world for many, uh, many months now. And uh, because of the circumstances that we're in, I now am talking to Dr. Stephanie Cappadona. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to Conversations with Carol.
1: Hello. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We are in a crisis right now. This is a special edition of our show. Um, Most of us know what's going on uh, between the state of Israel and the government of Gaza. That's Hamas. Hamas attacking Israel uh, some week plus ago and the aftermath. And as we sit on bated breath wondering what's going to take place next, will Israel fully march into Gaza to, first of all, release and rescue the 200 plus captives who are there and uh, do as little damage as possible. It's like threading a very, very difficult needle when you're looking Mm -hmm. at that. So, I want to say up front as we have this conversation, we are really talking about the people. We are talking about the people. We're not going to get into a philosophical or argument about the government that can go on for a long time and can be done elsewhere. But From a sociology point of view, from a criminal justice point of view, we're really interested in the people both in Israel and in Palestine and looking at how um, their troubles can be relieved and these problems can be solved from the point of view that our expert knows most of all. So, Stephanie, again, thank you so very much. Give us a sense of of your thoughts from an academic, from a personal perspective of what you are seeing uh, way across the waters.
1: Okay, sure. Um it's it's difficult to look at these uh, events for me without looking from the human perspective first and foremost, reg- regardless of politics and religious uh, viewpoints. And I think that's because um I've always tried to strive in my personal and professional life for social justice and worked with people regarding social justice issues and our department here at Curry College has social justice embedded in throughout its program. And all of our professors are really interested in that. So it's nice that I can work in this environment and know that I'm supported while I'm supporting others, students and other faculty and staff. So what we're uh, the perspective I take on it is what is happening, who is involved and is this according to international, is what's going on according to international law? If it is not, why is it not? What can be done to help it, the situation be in compliance? And from an international perspective, we're, we as America are supposed to be the moral authority, right? That's part of the job that we take on in, in claiming to be the uh, wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world. With that comes great responsibility. And that responsibility is is not only humanity and taking a humanistic perspective, but the moral perspective. So we obviously are, no one is perfect. No nation is perfect. We all at some point violate rights. What we have to do is do our best to not do that or to correct it if it is being done. So my perspective here is looking at it from the human perspective. What is going on? What is happening to people, especially when it comes to civilians? It's a different story when it's, you know, soldiers fighting soldiers. That that is unfortunately the part of war. Losing people, but when you're doing it with civilians and knowingly doing it, um, it makes it very difficult to talk about.
0: I appreciate your 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 comments and your perspective on this. I should say Stephanie Cappadona is an associate professor, recently promoted in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Curry College. And at this time, I am still the interim Chief Diversity Officer at Curry College, so I I work on committees with Stephanie. Uh, we are at gatherings together, and she is highly highly respected on campus for the work that she has been doing in criminal justice. I like what you said. You're looking at it. from the the point of view of being humane and looking at humans. Uh, As of this recording, President Joe Biden will be getting ready to go to Israel tomorrow um, to see what he can do from a human point of view to sort of cool things down so that we don't have such a full-scale war that it involves other parts of the region, of that particular region. And, and it's it as I said a little earlier before we came on camera, it's like threading a needle, a very, very difficult needle that has to be so precise because every margin of error that costs lives, lives are lost. When we look at those young people who were dancing at dawn in, um, in the desert in Israel and some 300 plus were slaughtered or taken captive at this point in time. And Mm -hmm. then with Hamas training for probably two years and then um, breaching the borders, going into homes and killing people in bed and beheading individuals, again, that is such a visceral scene from a human point of view. It obviously causes the reactions that we're looking at. But then on the other side, bombs in retaliation hitting buildings, flattening people, killing people in Gaza. These are just people, average people. We're looking at collateral damage on both sides. Stephanie, how do we handle that kind of a duality in looking at humanity from both perspectives? I think
1: that's a great question. This is this issue is is very difficult, I think, in many people's minds. It's, it doesn't have a clear good or bad guy like many times we have in war. So we can say, oh, we're for the allies, we're for the Americans, we're against the bad guy, we're against the communists, whatever it might be. And here it's more difficult than that because we're a nation so divided. And you, in, under normal circumstances, I would say normally we would be able to pull together as in the case of 9-11, we saw everybody come together. I'm not even sure if we would have that same camaraderie that we did after 9-11 if it happened now. So to have it happen in another nation, who is our great ally? But then to know that there are, are civilians on both sides that are being played in this war, they are being used in this war, and it's really, really difficult to see that happening. Like I said, if it's between soldiers and soldiers, it's terrible to lose a soldier on the battlefield. But it's not so shocking because that's their job. The people that were killed in Israel were going about their daily business. They were used. I mean, every I think it was every I heard that every home in Israel built after 2005 is by law required to have one of those safe rooms or secure rooms, however you say it. Um, so I think that describes what they are living through on a daily basis. They are used to air raid sirens, bombings. This was a whole nother level and of violence and personal violence and close up violence. This wasn't, I'm, they did shoot some rockets, but it's not shooting rockets from, you know, 110 miles away, whatever it is, and hitting people. It is going into their communities and getting up close and personal with them. And the as, as demonstrated in what we've heard coming out of the Israeli media telling us what has happened to people, um, and and survivors recounting their stories. This was a whole nother level of hate. Yeah. And
0: know, I'm go ahead. I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm resonating with what you're you're saying. And you talked about after the mid 2000s where bomb shelters or some kind of safe house, safe room has to be a part of the construction that goes on. Um, I my church is very close to Temple Israel here in the Boston area. I'm an AME, African Methodist Episcopal, part of the Methodist faith, and we've had a relationship with Temple Israel 20 years or so. And so in solidarity, um, I went with my Sunday school teacher and his wife, who are great um, academicians as well, and healers, and we went to, to support humans, human beings. And I was so elated and, and just uh, appreciated the, not only how the congregants talked about their pain, but also looked at the humanity on the other side. And they were concerned about the humanity on the other side. And one parishioner said, one uh, congregant said that when she had a con- conversation with her son, um, and who has connections in Israel? It was well, you know this. This happens a lot. They're, they've grown up in this kind of environment with bomb shelters in your house, etc. But yes, this certainly is at a new level. Again, with another congregant whose son's best buddy is now on the front lines mm-hmm. um, fighting. So it, it it it's 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 usual, but it's unusual. What do you, what do you, I I want to talk about students on campuses, but before we shift to that, what do you think um, we should do to help make aware the dynamics of the everyday person? And I say that because Israel was formed, became a nation in 1948, but the origins of the new Israel Started with Zionism in the late 1800s. And then, right around the end of World War I, 1919, um, 19, 1920 or so, you began to have a shift uh, with slow immigration. From parts of Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, into then Palestine of, of mm-hmm. Jewish people who were then migrating there. So it's a long history that goes back to the late 1800s, and then an even longer history when you're looking at it historically, back to 4000 BC or whatever, with Father Abraham, so who was the sort of the father of uh, of Judaism. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it from that perspective, that's that's quite a, a distance. The last 70 years, 60 or 70 years, it has been fractured, strength, defiance, humiliation, defeat on all sides um, that leads us now to where we are. So how do you get that message across to the person who maybe only listens to one news station, Stephanie Capadona?
1: That is tough. Obviously, if I had the answer to all of that, I might be president. Um... (laughs) Yes. Or something there where I could fix it. Um, and it's endlessly frustrating that that we are so polarized and in our own bubbles that we do not seek out opposite opinions. And I I encourage everyone, especially my students, to seek out an alternative perspective. Watch something that you, on some news that you might not, or listen to some news that you might not normally listen to. How are they presenting the topic? And then go back to where you normally get your information, and kind of compare and contrast the two. What is the difference in what you're seeing? What is the focus on? And what is the tale being told? Um, it's it's very difficult. The um, as you mentioned, this conflict in this area has been going on for decades to us, and thousands of years to their ancestors, and. It seems like there could be such a simple solution. Let's just split it, make it two states, right? Um, But you're always going to have someone that's going to disagree with that. Even if we could get that to happen, I believe there would still be terrorism on both sides, maybe, because you still have people that do not believe in that, who do not back that idea. Mm -hmm. So you just have to get out of your bubble. You have to engage other people and meet them where they are in speaking to them. And I always tell my students and other people that I speak to about this I am not trying to tell you what you should think. For my students, I'm trying to get you to think critically about this issue. What my opinion should not matter to you, my ideas about this should not matter to you. What you need to do is gather all of the information as unbiased as you can filter out the bias and then come to your own conclusion after you have critically analyzed that position. So I think, um, whereas many of us have have either relatives or friends or family members that have, um, been on opposite sides of us politically, Mm -hmm. and we just keep bashing heads against each other or against the wall because we just can't come to, um, a common place. I think we have to meet people where they are. Find the common interests that you have with that person and focus there. And then if you want to give your opinion, if you want to try to change someone's mind, a little bit of information, a little bit of information. But the most important thing is treating that person with dignity and respect and not um, discounting their point of view, or saying that their point of view is stupid or doesn't matter or it's inconsequential, because to, to people individually, everyone's important.
0: Yeah. You you bring up such great points. Uh, obviously, sourcing your information from different places that's that's a great way to fact check. Um, not just relying on your favorite X Y Z station platform or whatever, but going beyond that point and then critically thinking and mm-hmm. making sense in a way that helps you to rationalize your opinions instead of covering up or being defensive for your right. opinions and and i'd like to urge our watchers our listeners that it in in this instance not having an opinion is just as bad as being radicalized on both sides mm-hmm. is that if you sit silent and say nothing and have no opinion, then you condone whatever happens in some instances. Now, I know that there are people who work for nonprofit organizations or they work for political organizations. I get that. But I'm talking about the average person who would watch Mm -hmm. conversations with Carol or listen to conversations with Carol. And and again, we're putting this out so that you can form an opinion. We'll have a whole list of sources where you could get information about the historical component of Israel and how it started, Palestine, etc. We'll have all that. But having some kind of opinion that hopefully ends up where you are looking and sharing humanity on, peace on, in an informed way. That's where, that's my wish and my goal. Instead of either being so far right, so far left, or just Mm -hmm. silent and and saying this is where i'm going to stand that's not the answer particularly now and if you are in america i know i have many watchers and listeners from uh, other parts of the the world as well but from an american point of view yes we are involved in this <laughs> yes right. yes we are we are in this you can't say we're not we are involved take us talk to us now about our students mm-hmm. and particularly our our wonderful students at uh, private liberal arts schools like Curry College and others. Stephanie, talk to us about your students and, and students in general.
1: I think that's why I teach. I love the students. I love to see when they gain information, that, that light in their eyes or that little light bulb over their heads are like, oh, right, now I'm making the connections. And it just makes me, it fills me with warmth. It makes me so mm-hmm. happy to do. So I love Speaking with students, I have many students that will come by my office, um, off office hours and ask me, what did you think about this? Or they'll send me a podcast and go, oh, you have to listen to this. Or they'll send me an article. So I really try to stay engaged with my students as much as possible um, to that degree and keep them apprised of current events. But also making sure that they look into the past and know their history. In all of my classes, probably to their frustration, I repeatedly take them back. So, for example, in my justice and human rights class, we're talking about collective rights and economic rights, which will then dovetail into um, the X problem in America. So, we'll be talking about Native Americans and what happened in this country, how this country was founded. We'll be talking about slavery because you can't understand our our current politics, state of affairs without knowing the history. So I always go back and provide the the factual history as unbiased as possible. Sometimes it doesn't always work. Some people are going to feel attacked because that's just the nature of our history. Um, but trying to get them to understand a situation from all perspectives and not just coming at it from one direction, but giving giving them the information that they need to be able to form an opinion and to think critically about a situation. And even sometimes, I sometimes I get the classes that just don't know what to say. Um, I I some students won't speak up, and then you'll have those classes where it's always the same five students speaking up, right. and it's very frustrating to me. And sometimes they take it personally, like, why is no one talking about this? You should be outraged. Um, and people have students have come to me afterwards and like, I, I am, I just didn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice to hear that because then you, you know that you're making an impression on them. Even if it's not what their point of view is, they sit and they listen. And hopefully you'll get a little bit of um of sway here and there. Here is my side of the story. What's your side of the story? Let's t- come to a compromise and, or we have to agree to disagree. And I always try to, um, do it with kindness and respect because I think you catch more bees with honey than with vinegar. So, um, approaching it from that perspective And I also, one of the things I always said when I was in grad school, I said, I am never going to behave like these elitist academics. I am not going to treat them, my students, as they have treated me. And as you should in life, you should treat people the way you wanna be treated. So I run my classroom as though I would want it to be treated. So when I had a life crisis going on and I couldn't get something submitted, if I contacted the professor and said, look, can I have another week for this? then they would understand it and do it. Mm -hmm. So I want my students to feel that they can come and speak to me. I talk to them on their level. I don't use, you know, elitist terminology whenever possible. And I meet them where they are. And I try to take them a little bit further out of their comfort zone because the world is not a safe space. Mm -hmm. And And they need it.
0: You've brought something up in, in, my thoughts. You're talking about the student who hears all the arguments going back and forth in class, but doesn't get invited into the conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you invite students into the conversation where they feel safe enough to express themselves, Stephanie?
1: I usually um, try to make myself vulnerable to them or in front of them. I tell silly, stupid stories about myself. I tell them, oh, well, this is what happened to me when I was in school, when I was an undergrad. Um, I didn't like to speak either. And, you know, just different ways of trying to get to them. I am not that person that's gonna call you out by name and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I know that works for some professors, but that's just not my way because that's not how I wanted to be treated. So I try to treat them my way. I I share information about myself and open myself up to them so that they can feel more safe speaking to me. I'm not this elitist academic that is going to look down on you or criticize you for your point of view. I'm a regular person, and I just want you to all feel comfortable enough to share in the class, and I make sure to express to all of my students that everyone needs to be treated with dignity and respect. And just because you disagree with someone, that's fine. I hope you do argue. And sometimes I'll say something um, kind of controversial so I can get people to go, what, what is she talking about? And then they're like, wait, what? And then they start talking again. So that's kind of the two ways I try to to kind of draw them out. And many of the students I have in classes are repeat students. They've been in many of my classes. And by the second or third, the kids who didn't feel comfortable before now feel more comfortable speaking because they know me. And being at a small school, that's a
0: lot easier, too. Well, I'm sure the ones who sign up for the second and third class, they know what they're getting into. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're, they're I warned them. The experience. You knew me, so <laughs> <laughs> so how how are Curry students? How are they reacting? How do they feel about what is taking place uh, between Israel and Hamas?
1: I have to say I was not sure how they were gonna respond. So I prepared a PowerPoint presentation with images because I know I'm a visual learner. So I, whenever I'm talking about someone, I either Google it or have, you know, an image of them to show them, this is what I'm talking about. This is the situation. This is the place. And so I, I did that for them. I gave them the history of the, of the uh, region. I gave them the history of the conflict between the two, two places, two peoples, I guess is the proper term. And I have to say, in my justice and human rights class, they were astonishingly engaged. You know, there's always going to be that kid that's got his head down. I'm sleeping through this class because I was up too late and I can listen and I'm just sleeping, or I'm flipping through some other paperwork and doing something else. I have to say that the conversation I had on Monday, um, while they there were some people who didn't normally speak in class that did speak up and share mm-hmm. information. But I I saw all of their eyes on me and that I haven't seen in that class for a while. And and most of the students were there. So it was about 30 students and all of them had their desks in front of them cleared and were leaning in and watching me and looking at me and looking at what I was showing them on the screen. They weren't looking at their phones, even though phones are prohibited from my classroom. Um, somebody always is going to use one. And, and they didn't, they seemed very interested in what I was talking about. And I think they were grateful for the information. I know one student afterwards said, I said, I'm sorry, it was such a downer. You know, I said, it's such a hard topic to talk about. And she said, yeah, but we need to talk about it. It's really important and not all of our professors are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the area that I'm in because I'm social justice, criminal justice, sociology. Um, I guess in a math class, you might not have, you know, a, a direct link to make that connection with it. But I think we all as professors need to give our students the opportunity to speak in class. Take five or 10 minutes at the beginning of your class and say, what do we need to talk about? What is on your minds? What is your pressing issue? And to let all the students know, both those from from the Palestinian perspective and from the Israeli perspective, you are all important and you all matter. And I want to make sure that you understand on both sides that we are here for you. And I know you're hurting. Every side is hurting right now. And I do feel very helpless because all I can do is give a hug and that's not always even appropriate in class. So
0: um, we, we get your point, definitely get your point. You, 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 this is such a heartfelt conversation and I'm wondering Stephanie Capadona, could possibly that uh, desert air um, festival that was taking place throughout the night and into the morning and these are young people not much younger or older or the exact same age as the students in your class at Curry College could they have made that connection that made them pay attention to your class
1: i think so and that was one of the kind of the the hooks that i tried to use i always try to to get them to put themselves in somebody else's position When it's a war, how do you put yourself in that position? You haven't served in the military. You don't understand what it's like. You can't see from that perspective. You can try to to sympathize with somebody or empathize, but you don't really know what it's like. And so I did present the images. I showed a video of the young people dancing and having fun. And in the background, in the video I have, you can see the Hamas terrorists Landing, they're going through the sky and they're paragliding, right? Paragliding or parachuting into and and the contrast in that image, seeing those young people so happy and vibrant and enjoying themselves and each other as community with this group coming imminently to massacre them. And then you see all of them trying to flee and then trying to hide and this and that. And I said to them put yourself in that position. You're the same age. Think of the band or the person that you would like to go see. You're at a giant festival, and all of a sudden, terrorists come at you from every angle and get you. And why do they do that? Because of your faith, because of your religion, or because of your ethnicity. That is the only reason and the only purpose of doing it. And I think that, especially when it's their age, it really hits home.
0: Well, that's why no one was asleep in your class and why they were all <laughs> eyes on you just because the analogy is, is sadly perfect because you're talking about someone they could relate to because of the age factor. It's not just a war in a jungle with right. people you don't know whose language you don't speak and you don't right. have any kind of connection with them. But all these young people love music. They go to concerts. They go to street festivals, etc. And here in the background, you see the enemy landing to annihilate you. Right. And I try really hard for my
1: students to understand what it's like to be in another perspective. But I also tell them, I'm not Jewish, but that shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter that you're not a parent or that you're not of the same religion. You should care about this from a humanistic perspective. You should care about it because we are all human. And it always does bother me when somebody would say, oh, that doesn't affect me. You know, I'm not that color. I'm not that race. I'm not that religion. But you should care. And I think history has
0: shown us over the decades that we all should care,
1: regardless of our group affiliation.
0: Because as George Santiata said some years ago, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed. Yes, repeat.
1: and like you said, silence is complicity.
0: Yes, absolutely. How did you get involved? As as we're wrapping up, we could be, mm-hmm. we could talk about this for some time, and and this is just such an important conversation. Has criminal justice, the sociology topics, have they always been of interest to you? How did you move into this space?
1: They have actually. It's so funny. I used to love to read Nancy Drew books when I was younger. And so I was always loving a mystery. And my mom always liked Sherlock Holmes. So she would read those stories to me. Um, And I had some law enforcement, my family, my favorite, my very favorite uncle um, is a chief of police in um, Chesterfield, Missouri. To this day, he's got a nice cushy job um, where he's paid his dues and he sits there. But I remember he went to the FBI Academy and trained there and learned how to write up a profile on a serial killer. And he shared that with me. And that's been my thing as I I am fascinated by serial killers, by sexually sadistic serial killers, Mm -hmm. Um, because I can't harm a bug. And I want to know what what has brought you to the point that you can do this to someone else. And that applies to terrorism, serial killers, mass attacks, whatever, or juveniles who commit homicide. So I've always always really been interested in human behavior. And what makes people act outside the bounds of acceptable behavior? Is that innate? Is it learned? Is it some of both? Um, And is it controllable or not controllable? So I think that's kind of where it's more personal uh, preference and exposure that got me interested in the criminal justice field. So I have my undergrad in psychology than my master's in criminal justice and my PhD in sociology. So I I call myself well-rounded that I am interdisciplinary.
0: <laughs> very much so. Just a, a very innate interest. Uh, where you have been trained and cultivated, and most importantly, you are sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with students who you love. That's the important piece. Yeah. Yes, we we ask three questions at the end, and we certainly can go on with this topic as we will in, in future episodes. But the first thing is, what do most people not know about Dr. Stephanie Capadona?
1: <laughs> that could be a hard question because I tell them a lot more than they want to know. Um... I think people often mistake me for being very outgoing when in fact, I, I label myself as very shy, um, with some social anxiety. I don't like to be in big social situations. Um, I do have a fear of speaking in front of p- of public audiences. So it's odd that that's my job now to do. Um, but you know, I still get nervous at the beginning of every semester. So I'm very shy. I would rather be in the library doing the research, or on the computer doing research, than out there, like so many of the the professors that I learned from, out there in front of the cameras, being interviewed for a you know ten to twenty second sound bite on something they have no idea about because they have little information on it. So, I um, I think that's one of the things that that most people don't know about me. They think I'm much more outgoing than I feel that I am.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) That is fascinating. Maybe I'm a better actor than I thought. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) this is real. This is real. Right. (laughs) This is the real Stephanie. And and what about your favorite book or movie? Gosh, that's tough because I read so many
1: true crime books about um, serial killers um, that I can't really come. I know one one book that really influenced me, um, that kind of helped focus my trajectory in life, I think was from Joseph Campbell. Um, I've been drawn, I watched the, um, interviews on PBS with, uh, Joseph Campbell and, and Bill Moyers. I think it's like a six hour documentary series. And I watched it and I just loved what he was saying. And so I got, um, I've read a bunch of his books, but I think the one that um, most influenced me was the book about myths, um, The Origin of Myth. And he talks about our ancient myth mythology and how myths came about and how they can explain everyday you know, uh, events in our lives and how they're still relevant to our cultures today. And one of my favorite quotes comes from him where he says, follow, and maybe he's quoting someone else. I don't know the origin of it, but it's follow your bliss." And I always tell my students, don't tell your parents I told you this, but follow your bliss. Because if you can do what you love, or at least tangentially be involved in what you love, then you will be much happier in life. Happier than all the money you might get being in finance if that's not where your bliss is.
0: Follow your bliss. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you you good good author, good books. That that that'll that answers that question very much so, and a great quote as well. And then out of all the places in the world, where would you like to go? What's on your bucket list? Uh, so I um
1: I have I've been to Europe before. My father has distant relatives in Switzerland. So that's one side of the family. And so he taught me Swiss German when I was very, very young, which I don't remember any of now, but he did a good job. He would drill me every night and we'd go through and and speak it together. And um, he took me to Europe a couple of times, our family to Europe, once when I was two that I don't remember. And then when I was 13, when I was, you know, butting heads with him because I was a teenager and I was coming into my own and I didn't want to be told what to do. but we went to Switzerland and we went to Venice and those were two places that just grabbed me in the heart. I just fell in love with those places. The history, the culture, the views. Switzerland is one of the most beautiful countries in the world and we and there are a lot of beautiful countries including our own. But that is one place I will look at a picture of it and maybe because it reminds me of family past. Happy times, um, and my father, who's no longer with us, and I look at those pictures, and uh, it warms my heart and breaks my heart at the same time. <laughs> I'm trying to get my husband to, to go to Europe with me, but he is not up for that <laughs> plane ride.
0: <laughs> so Switzerland and Venice, or or I think so. Yeah, I think
1: both. I if I'm both. already over there, I'm going to see both.
0: Okay. All right. Dr. Stephanie Capadona this has been a wonderful, insightful, real uh, interview with tough subjects that you have handled masterfully. May you continue to enlighten and educate our student body and students who are yet to come to your classroom. You are the real deal, the one who can push buttons, but do it in a way where students can think critically, leave your class, leave our campus being better citizens. Thank you so much, Stephanie.
1: Thank you so much, Carol. It was such a pleasure to be here and a real honor to be here to speak with you and your audience. And I wish everyone the best, happiness and positive thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.